0: All right. We're continuing our study tonight in on the theme of Christ in the Old Testament. We've looked at uh, Christ in the Old Testament prophecies. We've looked at um, we've looked at the Old Testament personal appearances of Christ called theophanies or Christophanies. And now we're in the third and final segment of our study, uh, which is a you know a fairly substantial portion. We're looking at the the symbols of Christ in the old testament biblically described as types and shadows each one of these things that we're looking at is generally speaking uh, highlighting one specific aspect of either the person of Christ or the work of Christ and and he, <clears throat> doing so in old testament history in a way that points a, a spotlight forward in time to his arrival highlighting uh, some specific aspect of what he, who he would be and what he would accomplish. Uh, we, we've broken the section on types into seven different uh, approaches or seven different groupings. The first one we finished, which is Christ in Old Testament things. We did four studies on that. And so I'm starting a new one tonight, Christ in the Old Testament structures. And I think um, we'll probably be able to sufficiently cover this because it's a fairly short section uh, tonight, and maybe two additional studies beyond this one. And uh, what we're looking at in terms of structures is we're t- talking about things that were actually built in the Old Testament, uh, but built in a specific and special way as a as a in a sense, a prophetic building, a building in some sense that or structure in some sense that served a real and practical purpose in God's work among his people in the Old Testament, but whose greater purpose was not in that time period, but again, pointing forward to Christ. So uh, what I have done is I've looked at the entire Old Testament, and I've I've identified four primary, special, prophetic-type structures. And we're going to look at two of those tonight, and we'll save the last two, which are almost identical with some small differences. Um, we'll look at the last two, and the next uh, should take us two studies to do the last two. So the uh, the four structures are this: the Garden of Eden, the Ark of Noah, the Tabernacle that was built in the days of Moses, and then of course the Temple, which was built during the days of Solomon. And you've heard me um, if you've if you've been uh, part of our studies for any length of time, you've heard me weave specific uh, points or specific elements of the studies that we're gonna be doing over the next three studies. Uh, I've woven some details about these, these focal points into other studies that we've done, but this will be the first time that I'm actually separating out the, the, the focus on these structures in particular. So the question is, how did I identify These four structures, Eden, the Ark, the Tabernacle, and the Temple, how did I identify them as as types of Christ? In a sense, pointing forward in a prophetic and special way to the person or work of Christ. Uh, I think the thing that we need to look for is, uh, was the structure that we're going to identify as a type? Because there are far more than four structures found in the Old Testament. But was the structure, if it's going to be identified as a type was it built according to a blueprint or a plan that was inspired by God. And in the case of these four structures, we can clearly see that there was a specific plan involved that was of divine inspiration. And I don't see that same kind of connection to any of the other Old Testament structures. Now, our our basic working concept, um, let's let's start not in the Old Testament, but a very familiar verse from the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. I want to take us through three specific New Testament passages that'll that'll function as our foundation to the concept of divinely inspired structures that were built according to God's plan. The first one is in Matthew 16, as I said, and we'll just read verse 18. Remember, this is part of a a conversation, discussion between Jesus and his disciples having to do with whether or not they were able to spiritually apprehend and then identify him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this section, of course, uh, Simon Peter is the first of the disciples to accurately, spiritually, and boldly identify him in that way. And then from the response of Jesus to... Uh, Simon Peter. Let's pick up in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now when we studied this in the Gospel of Matthew, we went through the Gospel of Matthew, of course, in some detail together. Um, One of the things that I was emphasizing then, and would want to emphasize again tonight as we look at verse 18, is that this, in a sense, is, is Jesus giving a self-identified and proclaimed mission statement? You know, it's a it's a common thing among even uh, Christian organizations. This is true of organizations in the world, but it's true among churches and and even parachurch ministries to to formulate kind of a mission statement, which is this is the this is the thing that we're all about. If we could boil it down into one or two sentences. This is the core, the essence of what we exist for. And Jesus here is giving, in a sense, his own personal purpose statement. It's not a purpose that he just invented, of course. This is a purpose that was in his mind and heart, shared by God the Father's mind and heart, God the Holy Spirit's mind and heart, from before the foundation of the world. But it, it remained in his life and ministry in this world, the focus of what he came for, He came in order to save a people from the world to then form those people into a spiritual community that he identifies as his called-out ones, the church. And he calls that purpose in fulfillment a building of the church, which means, of course, that the church is, in the mind and heart of the Lord, a building. Now, he doesn't refer here to a divine blueprint for that building— But it's clearly implied if we understand the nature of God being that God does nothing haphazardly, that everything he does, he does according to his own plans and according to his own purposes. But let's uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll add that detail of the blueprint concept to the building of what God sent his son to accomplish— First Corinthians chapter three. And I'll read starting in verse nine. Well, Paul is at this point, he's addressing an issue in the in the church, which was divisions within what should have been a unified spiritual community in the church in Corinth. But the church was divided. The church was, to some extent, at odds with each other. And Paul is writing this portion of the letter to to mend the rift between these divisions. And here in verse 9, when he talks about we, he's, he's speaking about himself and those that are with him, sharing the apostolic work of planting and then shepherding the churches that God has established through him. And he says this, we are God's fellow workers, meaning Paul and his apostolic band, they are, they're working under the supervision of God himself, and they're working according to the purpose that God has assigned to them, the assignment God has given them. He says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, comma, God's building. And the idea here is he is, he is giving a, a double identification of the church, Both are true. Both are valid. Both are a word picture, two different word pictures that give a slightly different perspective about the nature of the church and what God is doing in the church. And for the sake of our study tonight, I'm going to focus just on the second one. The first one being that the church is in a sense like a field that God has planted, meaning the church is like a garden. And later we'll connect that theme when we look in a moment at the Garden of Eden. But right in this particular portion, I want to focus on the church. You are—he's speaking to the to the assembly in Corinth, the church in Corinth. You are God's building. Verse ten, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, that that, that designation which Paul is applying to himself in his role of bringing people to salvation and then forming them into viable, sustaining, healthy churches. His role as a master builder, which simply referred to like a, the probably the closest proximity that we would have in modern construction terminology, is the, the site boss. So that whenever you find a construction site where there is a building being constructed, you know in advance that if you walk onto that site and there are workers working there, there is one person at the top of that workman totem pole, and that one person is responsible for how that building is ultimately being constructed. And of course, what's implied by that is that no good construction boss is building, again, haphazardly. They're always following a detailed blueprint or a plan for that construction project. And so Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then he goes on to actually give warnings to all of those that are contributing to the construction project that he started. In this case, the construction project was the church in Corinth. And he's warning those that are adding to the project, you can add in the right way or you can add in the wrong way. If you add in the right way, at at the end, on the final day of judgment, there's a reward waiting for you from God himself. And if you're adding in the wrong way, you're going to be shocked and amazed and really dismayed at the complete lack of reward that's waiting for you on that day because you didn't build or add to the project in the way that serve the Lord's actual purposes. So here the emphasis is clearly on God has a purpose. The purpose is the construction of a building. The building is the church. And in Paul's perspective, because he's the master builder, he's the construction boss in this particular building project, according to him in verse 10, the only way that he was able to carry out this responsibility of being the wise master builder is he was given a special measure of grace at the beginning of verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me. And that grace enabled him to first understand that there was a blueprint, then to follow that blueprint in exacting detail so that at the end, the project of what was constructed was reflecting the plan and purpose in the mind and heart of the Lord. All right, let's look at one last New Testament passage. Hebrews chapter 11. And then we'll jump back into the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11. You know the the chapter. It's the chapter that kind of details what we call the heroes of faith of the Old Testament. Excuse me for my voice. It'll warm up in a minute, I think. Hebrews chapter 11, and in this particular portion I'm going to read, the focus is on Abraham. And I just want to read one verse uh, because I don't, what I want to read is not really focused on Abraham specifically, but on what uh, Abraham's faith was oriented toward. So chapter 11, verse 10, and it's speaking here of Abraham. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, the idea here is that Abraham had a true faith from the Lord, but it was a forward-looking faith. It wasn't a faith that was focused only and entirely on the circumstances that immediately surrounded his life, or even circumstances that he ever experienced during the course of his life. His faith was Was in a sense anchored into the future, and it was anchored to a hope to be a part of and a citizen of a city that had not yet been built on this earth. And it's ultimately, as we later come to understand deeper into the book of Hebrews, it's anchored to a city that's really not of this earth at all, but a heavenly city, a a city called Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's above using Jerusalem as an image for the heavenly city itself. So here I want to focus our attention on these two key words at at the end of verse 10. The city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And these two words highlight God's own role in the special spiritual structures that he has in his heart and mind to uh, bring into existence, to serve his purpose in this world. And ultimately, this is true of the heavenly city that uh, is in focus here. But the two roles that God fulfills are he is the designer of the city and he is the builder of the city. The builder, of course, just emphasizes that it's God's power, God's wisdom, and God's grace that ultimately brings about the fulfillment of the building project. But the word designer is uh, is a word that could have easily been translated here, architect. And of course, one of the roles of an architect is not just to conceptualize a project to be built, but then to um, take what is in their mind and heart as a as a building concept and then to put it on paper in what we call a building plan or a blueprint, but in such clear detail that they can then hand that plan over to a construction site boss, uh, a contractor in a sense, who will then take the plan that the construction boss didn't conceive of, but they're able to comprehend it, understand it, and follow it and then as a result, the building that, that uh, ends up is going to reflect the original plan that was in the architect's mind and heart. And so um, I wanted to take us through these passages to show that this is a, a recurring and consistent theme throughout Scripture. That God has a specific building in his heart and mind. He has a specific plan for how it's to be constructed. And then he gives grace both in the design of it and in the actual building of it, to those that are appointed by him to accomplish his purpose. And then in the Old Testament, there are four great buildings that serve as symbols pointing forward to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there's only a single building that's constructed. And of course, these four in some critically important way, point forward to that one great building project that's in the New Testament. The great building project in the New Testament is, as I've been referring in these three passages, is the church itself. The church is God's ultimate goal in terms of what he is building in history that will outlast human history and enter into and be sustained as a durable construction for all eternity to come. And so the question is, and and this should be an easy connection for us, the question is, how do these projects, if they're really pointing in some important way to the church, how do they function as a type of Christ? And the answer to that is simply that the church would not exist without the saving work of Christ. And so these function as, these four projects in the Old Testament, function as primarily types of the saving work of Christ. All right, so let's, from there, head back to the book of Genesis, and we'll look at the first of our four buildings, which is, the first one is not technically a building at all, but it is a built project by the Lord. So let's uh, start in Genesis chapter 2, And this is where we're going to find some some overlap in the two images that I highlighted when we were in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul identified the church by two images that are connected to each other, not one arguing against the other, one that, that supports the other and is somehow spiritually connected to the other in a kind of an overlap. Paul said the church was God's field, and God's building. And then he took the second of the two images and developed that further by identifying himself as the wise master builder, the construction boss of the building. But he could just as easily, it would have also served the purpose to identify himself as the wise master gardener of the, the, the field that God was planting, which is the church. And so this first building project, the Garden of Eden, is um, more emphasizing, of course, the field aspect of the building of God. So reading from chapter 2, just want to jump right into verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, so the, the, the key detail in verse 8 that I wanted to emphasize is simply, the Lord planted the garden. Um, I, I think that it's a easy to read right past a verse and miss the significance of the detail. Um, you know, Christians are very familiar with the Garden of Eden, It's a story that should be told in uh, filling our understanding of the beginnings of human history and how the world actually began. No matter what the world says, no matter how uh, people interpret the beginnings of human history in our current society and cultural perspective, the reality is this is how human society actually began, human history actually began. And it began with a project that the Lord engaged in. Uh, In this case, it was the planting of a garden, but the Lord himself was the one who planted it. Before Adam existed, before Eve existed, uh, the Lord himself picked a plot of land in the world that he had created. He chose a specific site here in Eden, and he planted a garden. Now, there's uh, there's a detail that's woven into the text that's not obvious in our English translation, but I want to bring it out, and that is the key word garden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and as a result, we end up calling it the Garden of Eden. Uh, But the idea is the garden, the word garden here, literally translated means this. It means a fenced or walled enclosure. A fenced or walled enclosure. And this concept was perpetuated in cultures that developed later in human history, uh, even to the point where I'll give one example from uh, Persian culture, ancient Persian culture. How many of you are familiar, and I think everybody here would be, with the, um, the theological word paradise? Everybody familiar with paradise? And we generally refer that either back to the Garden of Eden or forward to the heavenly, uh, the heavenly city and um, the Lord's presence in that heavenly city. Um, paradise is actually a Persian word, ancient Persian word, and it, it means a walled or enclosed garden area. And I'm convinced that uh, the Persians came up with that concept of a walled or enclosed garden, uh, deriving all the way back to the very first garden that was ever planted. That being, of course, the Garden of Eden, from which all humanity and all human history has a common thread of ancient remembrance because we all descended, of course, from Adam and Eve and from this original garden environment. Now, what's significant about the detail and why am I drawing this out is not just the Lord decided, you know what, in Eden, I want a garden there, but it's gonna, it's just kind of going to blend in with the surrounding area, and it's going to be hard to distinguish the Garden of Eden from the surrounding area. And I, I have run into some believers that, without thinking it through, even conceptualize that, in a sense, the entire world was like the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. I will say this. The entire world was sinless, meaning that because Adam and Eve had not sinned yet, there was no Spiritual fall of mankind, and because there was no fall of mankind, there was no revelation of god 's judgment in the earth that affected the environment in which we lived, so even the area outside the garden, I would imagine was vastly superior to the the most beautiful areas that we find and enjoy in the you know, kind of uh, unspoiled areas of the world today. But there was a distinction that that the Lord drew between the Garden of Eden and the immediately surrounding area. And so what was immediately surrounding the Garden of Eden? The whole rest of the world. And so we don't know exactly the shape of the garden. Uh, We don't know if it was a circle. We don't know if it was a square. To me, at this point, it doesn't terribly matter. Um, I have my own personal thoughts about it that I'm not even going to introduce into the study, but I would say this, that we do know this, not so much the shape, but we know that there was a barrier, and this is theologically significant in a typological way, pointing forward to the work of Christ. There was a barrier between what was inside the garden and what was outside the garden, a walled enclosure. Now, what was the nature of the wall? We just don't know. You know, Did God actually build a stone wall around the garden? Was it, a, um, was it an organic wall, meaning uh, so thick in, in uh, the vegetation that you could not walk through the walled portion? Uh, I don't know the nature of the wall. I just know that there was a wall, there was an enclosure, and it distinguished inside from outside. So um, is there any other detail in its construction that is significant? Well, there's two or three additional details that we need to pay attention to. So let's look at the very next verse, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you understand in terms of this second tree that's mentioned or specifically named, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that serves of course a a special testing purpose of the Lord that will ultimately ultimately lead to the fall of mankind as Adam and Eve choose the wrong tree, eat from the wrong tree, cross the line that the Lord forbade them to cross, and then experience, along with all of their descendants, including us, the outcome of that disobedience. But the focus here in terms of first mention, first priority, and the one and the only mention that will carry on even into eternity to come is this special tree Identify it as the tree of life. Now we know some details about the tree of life, Uh, essentially in in chapter three, which we'll get there in just a moment, we learn that had Adam and Eve eaten of the tree of life rather than the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have lived forever. Meaning that while they did have long, exceptionally long and extended lifespans compared to our number of years in this world, uh, nevertheless, Their lives came to an end, Adam being over 900 years old, but his life came to an end and he died. Had he eaten of the the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have lived forever and never died in this world. So it's a unique tree, a special tree, and of course that tree functions and serves from the book of Genesis, and we'll eventually get there to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, So from beginning to end of God's revealed word, it functions as a symbol of what clearly should be understood by us as eternal life. And the eternal life is a direct function for us of the saving sacrifice of Christ for us on the cross, which is identified throughout scripture as the tree that he was hung upon in bearing the penalty for our sins that we deserve to receive, but he took upon himself in our place and uh, did so to the point of death. And as a result, uh, we are the beneficiaries of the eternal life that he deserved, and we had not, of course, earned or deserved. So tree of life as an emphasis on the cross and as an emphasis on what comes to us out of our experience of partaking of the tree of life, which is eternal life. And so this again Points as a type directly to the work of Christ. Now let's look again at the next verse, verse 10. One additional detail. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, and these next two are the two more familiar to uh, modern knowledge of rivers in that part of the world, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Those are rivers, of course, that that, uh, still exist to this day, even after the events of the flood of Noah. So what's the significance of this emphasis on this river? Uh, First, it's a river that had its origin in Eden. It, in a sense, uh, the spring for this river it 's an unnamed river at this point until it splits, and then the four splits are named. but this unnamed river has its origin point in Eden, meaning the water was bubbling up out of the ground somewhere in the Garden of Eden itself, and it it flowed in order to water the garden. but the idea is that those rivers didn 't weren't weren't contained that one river that split into four wasn 't contained within the parameters of the garden itself. In other words, these are waters that flowed beyond the boundaries of the garden. We know that because of the specific naming of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are long rivers that extend through a vast part of that region of the world and certainly wouldn't have been contained within the, um, the region of the Garden of Eden itself. Now, uh, why is the river significant? Let's look at two passages. Uh, first, Ezekiel, chapter 47. I'm not, not going to get into all the details of why I'm interpreting this passage in the way that I am. This is part of a group, a section of the prophecy of Ezekiel, which has to do with a a new construction of a new temple. Uh, this was in the days of Ezekiel, who lived, of course, during the... Um, During the captivity of Israel, Israel for generations, and I'm going to be in chapter 47 if I didn't mention that, Israel for generations had been in in significant disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. And at a certain point, the Lord uh, drew a line and he said, I'm not going to allow you to continue to rebel against me in this way. And so he raised up a circumstance, a great circumstance of judgment against Israel and had them conquered by the Babylonian Empire and uh, led away, those that survived the conquest, led away into captivity. And Ezekiel was among those captives. Now, part of the captivity and, and the destruction that, that resulted from the conquest was that the great structure, which we'll be studying in the next two studies, the great structure built by the blueprint of the Lord, which was the temple of God built in the days of Solomon, that structure was devastated and the conquest of the Babylonians. And all of the items of the special furnishings of that temple were carried away into Babylon in captivity. And Ezekiel was among those captives. But while he was there in captivity, the Lord gave him this vision of a new and rebuilt temple. Now, a few years later, the Israelites were brought back from their captivity, not all of them, but a a remnant portion of the captives were brought back during the days of <clears throat> Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the great things they did was rebuilt the temple. Ezra was um, was on point in his assignment from the Lord to ensure that the temple was rebuilt during his days. But that temple did not match the temple in the vision of Ezekiel. So there's, <clears throat> there's, discussion and debate among Christian scholars. What is Ezekiel's temple? And I will just tell you, I do not believe that Ezekiel's temple will ever be physically built in this world. I believe that God gave him a blueprint, but the blueprint itself, just like the actual temple of Solomon, is a blueprint of the church, a blueprint of the great eternal work that God would be starting from the work of Christ when he arrived. So I'm just going to pick up one detail of Ezekiel's temple and connect it to the Garden of Eden. And what we're going to see is there's, in these four structures, there's a lot of overlap points. There's a lot of connection points. So the garden is connected to the Ark of Noah which is connected to the tabernacle, which is connected to the temple, which is connected to Ezekiel's temple. There's a lot of similarity and overlap between these various structures. They're not identical in their details. Even the tabernacle and temple have differences, but there are many spiritual points of of connection and overlap, and this is one of them. So we're reading from Ezekiel 47. I'll just read the first couple of verses uh, when it says this. Then this is Ezekiel, in his vision, be, being escorted by an angel who is revealing to him this temple to be built. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from bef- below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Now the next several verses go into a detailed description, which I'm just going to briefly summarize, of what this river was like. It began by trickling out from under the doorways of the temple itself. And as it flowed out, contrary to natural um, descriptions of how rivers function, the water got stronger and deeper the further away it, it got from its source. Rather than the strongest water being at its source, and then as the water seeps out, the, the water kind of diminishes as it goes out. This is a, a river that grew greater and stronger as it went out from the uh, doorways of the temple, or the, the the great doorway on the east side of the temple. So what is the point here? The temple functions at during its time in, in God's revelatory purposes in history, as what the Lord himself calls the house of God. And so the water is coming from the house of God. Now, in, in the case of your house and my house, this would be what we would call a uh, household disaster. One time, in some of you may remember this happening, one time when I was in Kenya teaching one of the pastor's conferences, I don't know if it was the first year or the second year, but the the hose on the back of my washing machine burst and flooded the back half of my house. And so, you know, if it had kept going, if if uh, it wasn't noticed, eventually that water would have started seeping out the front doorway of my house. And anyone coming up to my house wouldn't have said, "Oh, what a great blessing." They would have said, "Oh, this is a disaster." And when I came home, you know. It's problematic. It was something that had to be resolved, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole issue with that. But in God's house, water flowing out from his house wasn't problematic, and it wasn't disastrous. This water, of course, was coming from the Lord's presence, and it was symbolically representing the Lord's purpose. Because the flowing of this river of water, it's like a river of life that's flowing out from the interior of the house, and of course, we don't know which exact point of the interior of the house it flowed from because there's two rooms in God's temple, two rooms in his house, and we're talking about inner rooms. Um, One is the holy place, which is the public area of God's house, and one is the holy of holies, which is the private area of God's house, but I'm going to guess and say I think it came from the innermost room rather than the intermediate room, the the outer room. And if it came from the innermost room, it would have come from the Ark of the Covenant as the source of this river, flowing out from that under the curtain separating the two rooms and ultimately out through the, the main doorway into the house and flowing out into the courtyard of the temple and beyond the courtyard, eventually watering the world that surrounds it. Now, all of this is, of course, imagery that continues all the way to the end of God's book. Turn with me now to Revelation 22. I know I'm giving you a lot of details, some of which you may never have thought about before. I don't want to lose you in the details, but what I do hope you'll catch tonight in this study in particular is just the connectivity of God's story. Of what he is accomplishing in history, from the Garden of Eden to the Heavenly City, it's all telling one essential story. And there, are, there are detailed components to it, but it, we're meant to get the the connectivity of the entire story. So we're reading from Revelation twenty-two, verse one, and now we have another heavenly escort, not for Ezekiel in his vision, but this is for John the Apostle in his vision and he is having a heavenly vision. In fact, John is seeing heaven itself, and he is being showed what he sees by heavenly escort. So verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So I ventured a guess, and it it was a biblically informed guess, and you'll now, from the Revelation passage, understand why I ventured the guess. Where was the origin of the river in Ezekiel's temple? I guess it's flowing from the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost room of the temple, The reason for that is because the river of life that Ezekiel's temple is also picturing is flowing here in Revelation 22, not from an earthly symbolic representation of the throne of God, but from the actual throne of God in heaven. There is a river that flows out from that throne that's identified by the Lord for our benefit as the river of life, Again, simply another image pointing to the saving work of Christ. All right, now let's head all the way back to Genesis 3 and catch the third and final detail of the construction of the garden that I wanted to emphasize. This is the end of the garden story. We've discussed this detail many times, but it's worth revisiting. I'm reading from verse 22, and here, and this is chapter three, verse 22. This is after Adam has sinned, and the Lord has appeared in the garden in order to hold Adam and Eve and the serpent who tempted her uh, accountable for their. Their sins, uh, this is the conclusion of the lord's judgment. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then that's an unended sentence, kind of like the ramifications of that would be disastrous, so therefore the Lord won't allow that to happen. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, the Lord sent Adam out, Adam not alone, Adam and Eve with him, of course. He sent him out from the Garden of Eden, which implies there's got to be a break in what? The walled enclosure. It can't be a consistent walled enclosure entirely around the garden if that's the case there'd be no way out for Adam. And so what's implied here is that there is an exit which is also functioning as an entrance. So he drove out the man. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, and these details are certainly not insignificant. It's another another emphasis point When the water flowed out from Ezekiel's temple, which direction was it flowing? It was flowing to the east because the doorway to the temple was set on the east side. He drove out the man at the east of the garden. And why the east? Because the east is the side of geography from which the sun rises. And that then connects to another type or image of Christ, which we saw in the things our study of the things that, that typify Christ in the Old Testament. One of those was Christ being imaged by a son of righteousness rising with healing in its wings on the east side. So here he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he, the Lord, placed the cherubim. Now, this is an easily misunderstood word. We, we sang one of the songs in our, in our worship tonight that, that Use the word seraphim and another that use the word cherubim. These are taken from heavenly visions, but this is the first use of that term in scripture. And it is a plural word, it's a plural of the word cherub. And a cherub is a special category of angel. It's not, again, I know you know this, but it's not, the, you know, this is for the sake of anyone listening on sermon audio. Uh, this is not a reference to a chubby little baby. <laughs> with baby wings, with a little bow that only comes out on Valentine's Day. Um, Cherub is a a special category of mysterious and amazing what are called living creatures that surround the throne of God in heaven and have a specially appointed purpose in heavenly worship. But um, the word cherubim is a pluralization of cherub. So how many cherubs were placed where they were placed here in verse twenty four which is at the exit point of the Garden of Eden, we know that minimum of two were placed there. I personally think it was two. Why? Because on the Ark of the Covenant, represented later, and again, this is another overlap point, the temple, uh, excuse me, the tabernacle and the temple in both of the uh, House of God uh, itinerations, uh, you have two cherubs or a pair of cherubim. That are situated on either side of the representation of God's throne. So, I personally believe that God, here in this circumstance in verse 24, when he drove out the man, so that takes place first, Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden, and as soon as they're ejected, God assigns two cherubim to stand at the exit for Adam and Eve, but now. As a guard against a possible attempt at re entry into the garden. And where are they they standing? They're standing at the doorway or the gateway to the Garden of Eden to ensure here, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword, meaning each one of these cherubs held a flaming sword, uh, which just from visuals alone, I'm sure was a sufficient deterrent for any attempts by Adam and Eve. You know what? life was much better in the garden. Let's just see if we can sneak back in. Obviously they get back to the entry of the garden and there's these two living creatures that never sleep and are bigger, glorious, more powerful than any human being has ever been. And They're holding flaming swords. Flaming swords are not just for decorative purposes, they're for judgment execution purposes. If That line is ever crossed in the future. So it just simply ensured for all of the time from Adam until Noah, it ensured that none of the inhabitants of the earth could ever re-enter the Garden of Eden. And the whole purpose of that was to guard the way to the tree of life, to ensure that no one received eternal life unless they were granted access by the Lord spiritually in, in, in the way of having a true spiritual relationship with the Lord according to how he had revealed himself in that time frame. So um, that sums up our understanding of the Garden of Eden as a special structure. Uh, Let me give you two passages. To our, our, Let me give you a a total of uh, four passages real quick. I'm not going to take time to develop these or I'll never get to the the second of our structures tonight. Uh, John chapter 10 verses 7 and 9. John chapter 14, verse 6. Now, the reason for those two passages is they both emphasize, Jesus himself emphasizing, that he functions as the singular door into right fellowship with God and the experience of true eternal life. The reason for that is that in each one of our structures, and uh, you may remember me making this emphasis before, uh, the Garden of Eden, the Ark of Noah, the tabernacle, and the temple. Lots of differing details, but one detail that was true of all four structures, and in a very uh, spiritually significant way, there was one, only one door into each one of these structures. One exit point and one entry point, which all point forward to Christ. As the This is when when believers are proclaiming the gospel to an unbelieving world, This is where your understanding of the types, the symbolic uh, shadows that prefigure the work of Christ are really important to grant you the confidence necessary to be able to boldly say to an unbelieving world around you, Christ is the only way to reach a true and saving relationship with God. There is no other way into the Garden of Eden. There is no other way into the Ark of Safety, which is what Noah's Ark is all about, of course. There is no other way into fellowship in the house of God with God himself in both tabernacle and temple other than the one door which is set in every case on the east side, that one door pointing forward to Christ. And then two other passages, uh, 1 Kings 6.29 and John 12.13. These are what I'm going to call echoes of Eden because what you'll see in 1 Kings 6.29 is one of the descriptions of the temple of God is a Garden of Eden image, which is in the temple as you walked into the structure. And of course, only the Levitical priests were allowed to do this. But as they walked into the structure, what they saw decorating all the walls of the temple were what? It's important to understand. It wasn't just like in this structure that we're in, this church structure. We've got bricks and then we've got white walls and, you know, it's, it's attractive, but it's you know, I'm not complaining. It's plain. God's house was not like that. God's house was beautiful in every respect. And as you looked at the walls, there were various things represented on the walls. But one thing that was consistent in terms of a, a consistent pattern of beautification were a representation of palm trees. Now, palm trees, of course, are going to have a have a have an enduring and special typological purpose throughout God's Word. But I connected it for you with uh, when the people of Jerusalem came out to recognize the entry of Christ. uh, There was, of course, a celebration uh, with palm branches. And of course, going all the way back to the law and the various feast days, there was the, the, the one feast day where palm branches were specifically appointed for the worship. All of that is hearkening back to Edenic imagery carried forward into Only the Messiah in his arrival can restore Eden. That's the point of these images. All right, um, we could spend more time with that, uh, but let's get on to our last structure. uh, Genesis chapter 6 now. This is Noah's Ark. So if the Garden of Eden was a type of the restoration of all things in Christ to an Edenic perfection of right fellowship with God. What is the ark a type of? It's a type of the work of Christ to save us from God's well deserved judgment. And of course, we know from uh, the early verses of Genesis chapter 6, which is the prelude to the building of Noah's ark, um, the description of the current condition of humanity. And the society that filled this world because of that corrupted spiritual condition of humanity is a very important one for us to to understand and remember, hold in our perspective. It's set in contrast to the building of the ark. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then this description, which is almost mind-boggling unless you understand the nature of, of the fall of man and how deeply the fall actually affected all of humanity. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart, his here is mankind, meaning there's no exception to this. Every single human being on the face of the earth was characterized by this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as a result, the Lord the lord appointed a a vast and earth cleansing judgment which we know as the flood now let's pick up the details that have to do with the construction of the ark first verse 14 there's a couple of details here for us this is the, i'll read verse 13 just to get the flow and god said to noah i have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, this is the assignment given to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. The inside and out with pitch just simply is going to ensure that it's, it's not going to be... Uh, the wood that's used is not going to be soaked with water in a in a way that would uh, promote mold, mildew, mildew, and deterioration because the ark is going to need to function for a considerable amount of time while the flood is upon the earth. But the first detail is the ark was constructed of a special kind of wood, a specific kind of wood known here as gopher wood. This wood, what we know about it is it's it's described um, in all the all the uh, commentaries that I have access to as as kind of an, a durable wood, an indestructible wood, an incorruptible wood. Meaning there are some woods where the pores of the wood itself are so large that they readily soak up water when they're exposed to it. And then other woods are exceptionally dense. The pores are exceptionally small. And as a result, they're, they're somewhat naturally impervious to water damage. Gopher wood being the most impervious to water damage of all the natural woods, God chose That kind of wood for the ark, which just tells us something about what God is building is meant to be impervious to the influences, the corrupting, the molding, mildewing influences of a rotting culture and society that surrounds it. And again, this is pointing forward to the nature of what God is building in the church. Second, it's in verse 14, it's to be made with rooms in it. And of course, the rooms are very practical. They serve a practical purpose. Uh, Noah and his family, there's eight humans or three families. So you need three rooms for the three families. And then of course, there's going to be all kinds of animals and birds and creeping things that are going to survive on the ark in order to repopulate the world once the flood recedes. So each category is going to need its own room. Um, I, th- I do see here, however, a parallel to the declaration of the Lord Jesus in in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 2, where he said, in my father's house are many rooms. The idea being that there are places that are appointed in God's saving structure that we know as the church, which is that group of people that are in right relationship with him, and that I think is portrayed here in the construction of the ark. Um, Generally speaking, when you see kind of drawings of what it might have been like inside the ark, most of the time you see like just one big open area and and Noah's kind of surrounded by animals and and there might be stalls, but not actual rooms. According to the text, there were actual rooms uh, that were divided according to uh, categories of those that inhabited them. Uh, then down in verse 16, a uh, detail that I've already emphasized from the uh, both the garden and then the tabernacle and temple to follow. Uh, verse 16, the Lord said, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks." Now, we are not told here that the door was set on the east side of the ark. Why not? Because that's emphasized with, the, it's emphasized with the garden. It's emphasized with the tabernacle. It's emphasized with the temple that the door is always on the east side. Why wouldn't it be emphasized in this one structure, which is so similar to the others? Because the ark is a floating structure, so it's, it's, it's not going to always be perfectly situated toward the east with the door only ever on the east side as it's floating on the waters. And so I believe the Lord left that detail out, not because it's insignificant, but just simply because it's functioning practically in a different kind of way. But nevertheless, the one detail that is consistent with the garden and the tabernacle and the temple is how many doors are there into and out of the ark? Only one. And I I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll mention it again. It doesn't even, practically speaking, make a lot of sense. Because it was a huge project. Can you imagine? Okay, take a minimum of all animal species of two of each animal, and in some cases the ones that were suitable for sacrificial purposes, they were to take seven of those species and herd them all into the ark, so to speak, um, it would take a long time to do that. And it wouldn't be a lot faster if there were like maybe three doors on each side of the ark, you know. So there's just a lot more access rather than funneling all of the animals through this singular door. Now, granted, the door had to be fairly sizable. How do we know? I mean, just let's, we're not even talking about dinosaurs, just focus on elephants. The door was at least the size of an elephant. And, you know, giraffes have to get in that door also. Yes, they could bend their necks down, but elephants for sure, that's a fairly sizable door if you've ever been anywhere in the close proximity of an elephant. And so there was only one single door. Again, this just simply emphasizing Christ as the only way into the place of safety from God's well-deserved judgment when the judgment of the Lord, the final judgment— hits this earth as it will at the second coming of Christ. Uh, The place of safety, the only place of safety, is in the ark that he has appointed for our salvation, which is his son, him being the way into that place. Um, The other detail in verse 16, again, just that it's made with three segments, three sections to it. Now, I didn't emphasize this from the Garden of Eden, because it would be purely speculative. That detail is not mentioned anywhere in the description of the Garden of Eden. But it is emphasized and mentioned specifically with the tabernacle and the temple, which we'll be studying in in the next couple of weeks, And in that the tabernacle has how many sections to it? It has three. How many does the temple have? Three sections. How many sections does the ark have? Three sections. So in in the tabernacle and the temple, it's the outer court, the outer room and the inner room, those being the three parts or three sections of God's revealed house in the, um, in the ark here. It's done by way of one stack on top of the other just for practicality of the functioning of the ark itself. So a lower second and third deck. We do not know, I, I in rereading some commentaries on this, um, there was some interesting speculation, but we do not know which which deck Noah lived on, which deck the animals lived on, which deck the birds lived on. I read some interesting accounts of uh, just speculation. So I'm not going to even go into speculation. I would just tell you there's a purpose and a point to the three segments concept. In the same way that there is a corresponding purpose for why the Lord has made the cosmos the way he's made it, and you've heard me emphasize that there are, biblically speaking, three heavens—exactly three, not as um, you know, like in uh, in certain mythology, seven heavens or or some uh, some uh, kind of twisted variations on biblical cosmology. There's three heavens. There's the atmosphere that immediately surrounds this planet, which we call the sky. There is the known and revealed universe, the stars in the heavens and there is heaven itself. So why are there three sections to everything important that God has built, including the entire creation, three sections, including the uh, Ark of Noah, including the tabernacle, the house of God, including the temple? I think this is all pointing to the work of the triune God in all that he has made in all of his saving efforts. And then... um, Let's end with this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3. I know you're familiar with this. We've studied this before together. We'll end our study here tonight. Where Peter specifically links the activity of the Lord with the building of the ark and the flood that was coming to the saving work of Christ. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also, and I I won't have time to go into all the details in this passage because we're at the end of our time tonight, but I just want you to connect it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. The construction of the ark, the flooding of the earth, and all that God built in that regard to save a a remnant portion of mankind is all ultimately pointing forward to the saving work of Christ. All right, that brings us to the end tonight. Next week and the week after, Lord willing, we'll take a look in some detail at the tabernacle and the temple as the other two great um, typological prophetic uh, symbolic structures of the Old Testament pointing to Christ.